0: They say patience is
1: a virtue, but I can wait as long as you do for a change. Call me insane, but that's my end. Hi everyone, and um, welcome back to Untelevised, the podcast, um, a podcast where we explore possibilities for social change and what that might look like in all sorts of different fields and sectors in society, um, and how we might all participate in that change, whether we're sort of veteran activists or whether we're really new to um, the idea and the subjects. My name is Mona, and with me is Fazeo. Hi, Fazeo. Hi Mona. (laughs) How how are you this week?
2: Not too bad this week. Um, The weather's definitely not as nice as it was the last time we recorded, which dominated um, and dictated my mood being good last time. But yeah, um, not too bad. A lot going on, a lot of um, preparing and delivering workshops again now that things are open up um, and preparing for the summer. So very busy, but... um, yeah, not too bad. I won't, I won't go as far as good, but not too bad. What about you?
1: <laughs> yeah, I won't dare go as far as good either. Let's not set standards <laughs> too high. <laughs> um, kind of similar, actually. Like, you know, the world, as we've said, seems to kick back in a bit, and um, there is a lot of change going on. So, just kind of doing a lot of change management, which sounds very corporate. I don't like how that sounded, but that's fine. It's, it's still what is happening. So, yeah. Um, but change, we do like change. I mean, we like social change. So I guess um, in light of that, um, this week we are focusing on education, um, which is definitely a big topic, um, very important to sort of social change and cultivating social change and something which we keep referencing in almost, you know, so many of the episodes we've done, of course, people come back to, you know, if people want to understand this subject, they need to be educated on it. And, you know, when we explored democracy, it was very much discussed that understanding our democratic system has to come from our schools. Um, When we talked about capitalism, we heard that you're not allowed to teach critiques of capitalism in schools, which says a lot about the restrictions of schools. When we learned about socialism, we learned how important it was to you know, broaden young people's imaginations and their minds. And so it was inevitable that we kind of had to get here. And obviously, um well, maybe not obviously, but education is perhaps still one of the few things left that we when, when we spoke about welfare state and statutory services, education is one of the ones that we are still entitled to. No matter how much things are cut back in society, we still seem to at least still be entitled to a free education. So it is kind of maybe one of those pillars of um the social fabric of our society, I guess. Um, we would like to do a shout out um, because it, the, one of the sort of encouragements as well for this episode is actually that a very, very dedicated listener, um, Renata Medeiros-Mira, who is a lecturer at Cardiff University and a trade unionist, um, emailed us a while ago and pretty much said, would you do a, an episode on education? And here are my concerns with the system and how it's becoming commercialized and how it's maybe not serving students. And we love that. That's what we've been encouraging our listeners to do for a long time. And here is proof that your requests will eventually come true. (laughs) Maybe not always in life, but hopefully with our podcast. (laughs) Um, But I guess uh, before we sort of again, as always, launch into our discussions, I guess we probably want to be defining some of the key terms within education that especially our guests today do touch upon Yeah, yeah. Let's jump into the learn section. Learn section in very much an education uh, style. (laughs) Now,
2: there is so much that we could talk about around education in our learn section. The education system in the UK, like most of the systems in the UK, is quite complex and it has many facets to it that we could explore. But we're going to try and keep it quite short and simple for you. There'll also be quite a few stats that I'll say in this section and they'll mainly refer to England as the models differ slightly in the devolved governments of Scotland and Wales. We'll keep notes in the description though and we'll link to lots of articles and things that you can explore more if you would like to look into the system a little bit more. Also really handy might be listening to our systems episodes, our democracy episode and our running as a candidate episode because they all explain the levels of government a bit more that I'll refer to in this section. So where did education as we know it start? It was actually after the Industrial Revolution when society was transferring from an agricultural economy to a manufacturing economy using factories. At the time, people fought to have the government set up public schools that would allow for a basic level of education for all children. Now, this was not done altruistically. The primary aim was actually to free up parents' time so that they could go and work in the factories. And also to train the next generation of the workforce. Before this time, only about half of all children in the UK attended school. Now, slightly later on in the century, in 1880, this was formalised into law and education became compulsory for all children under the age of 10. Now, this sounds super young in the modern age and that's because this has gone up incrementally in several acts and laws to follow. Until we've got to where we are today, where all young people in England have to continue in either education or vocational training until the age of 18, And young people across the UK, there's slightly different rules, but the minimum age across the UK is 16. To accommodate all of this in 2021, there are now over 30,000 schools and 142 universities. Now, within these 30,000 schools, there are lots of different little nuances in the types of model that they use. Again, we're not going to go into this in too much detail, but we will link to some more resources where you can explore this in the description. I just want to focus on three main distinctions that I think will be useful for understanding our conversations. Now, the first model I want to talk about is the most common type of schooling that we have in the UK, and that's state funded schooling. Now, approximately 93% of English school children attend a school that is funded by the state in some way. The state gets the money for these schools through taxation. In a similar way to the way we fund the NHS, our wages are taxed and that money goes towards several different statutory services, including state schools. That means that they're free at the point of access for all students that wish to go to them. As well as being state funded, state schools are also run by the state, or to be more specific, run by the local authority in the area that they are situated. So a state school in Brixton will be run by Lambeth local authority and a state school in Wimbledon will be run by Merton local authority. Again, you can listen to our previous episodes under this democracy series to learn a little bit more about what a local authority is and what the different levels of government are, if you'd like to explore that more. Now, the second model that I want to mention is academies. Academies are also state funded, but they're what is known as an independent state funded school. Now, this distinction is important because it recognises that they still get a lot of their income from the state, but it comes directly from central government rather than the local authority. This means that they're independent from the control of the local authority and are instead often run by private companies or trusts instead. It was a concept that was established by the Labour government under Tony Blair to replace poorly performing schools in areas that had been identified as having high social and economic deprivation. Now, this policy was heavily expanded upon by the government that followed, the 2010 Conservative Liberal Democrat Coalition government, and it's been continued to be expanded by the current Conservative government. Indeed, at one point, it was actually announced that there was a plan to have forced academisation, under which all schools in England would have to convert to academies. However, this was met with really strong criticism from teaching unions, and this plan was abandoned. This is not to say that academies haven't been really popular, though, and to date, around 37% of primary schools are academies and a whopping 78% of secondary schools have converted to academies. And this means that over half of the pupils that attend a school attend an academy. Now, the last type of school that I want to mention is an independent or a private school. Now, unlike the other two models that I've mentioned, these schools do not receive any form of funding from the state. Rather, they get their money primarily through charging students to attend. Now, the average fee for an independent school is just over £15,000 per year for a day student and just over £36,000 for boarders. And around 7% of school children in the UK attend an independent or private school. Now when I refer to independence in both academies and private schools I mainly refer to what they're allowed to teach. Now while state schools have to follow something called a national curriculum the other two types of schools I spoke to do not. They are free to teach students within reason what they would like to teach them. Now, I'm going to pass to Mona to explain what the national curriculum is because I've been talking for far too long. (laughs) But that, in essence, are the different models of school and a really basic explanation of what distinguishes them.
1: So the national curriculum, as the term might describe, is nationally um, what is prescribed for schools to teach students. Um, It is set by government. It might then have a little bit of individual alteration at local level, But essentially, it is kind of prescribed by the state, Um, the idea being that then you have at least some baseline that all kids are learning the same thing, that there is maybe some justice in that and that you can monitor it and that it's not just, you know, based on the free whim of whatever a teacher fancies kind of doing that day or teaching that day. it, the National Curriculum um, sort of sets, you know, um, a range of subjects and standards that both primary and secondary schools would follow um, and kind of dictates at least some, you know, guidelines for what children should learn. That might, of course, still allow a teacher to have individual lesson plans or whatever, but it does set, like, the outcomes, the goals, um, at what age should a student learn what, etc., cetera, um, and what subjects to schools should teach. The National Curriculum, as well as other... Um, Like standards within a school are then regulated by a body called Ofsted. Um, Ofsted is the Office for Standards in Education, Children's Services and Skills. Um, And they describe their role as making sure that organisations providing education, training and care services in England do so to a high standard for children and students. And they go into schools, they do checks, they observe lessons, they will, and then they will put schools into kind of a Um, A category like are they performing excellently are they good are they just meeting basic standards or are they poor are they should they be put into like special measures you know should they be taken over um should they be shut down even so that is a way that the state in theory tries to regulate the quality of education that we give to you know all students across the country and keeps it as unified as possible and that is also something that you will hear um our guests referencing to some extent. So, but we have two incredibly um experienced and passionate guests that can definitely explain um much more about our education system to us. So, we're going to pass over to them. Oh, really? So this week, um, I speak to Lloyd Menzies, the chief executive of the Centre for Education and Youth. Um, Lloyd has a background um, as a teacher and youth worker, so very much kind of frontline knowledge. He has been a school governor and a trustee of a number of youth-related charities, um, but also has really strong policy understanding. He's authored numerous high-profile reports on issues ranging from youth homelessness to teacher recruitment, um, and he works closely with practitioners and policymakers to communicate research findings and their implications um, within education policy. He is also the editor of Young People on the Margins, um, Priorities for Action in Education and Youth.
3: So, I think there's quite a lot of overlapping reasons, and I think a lot of the knots we get tied into in the sector are actually because of those overlapping and sometimes competing different functions. And um, so, to start, I guess, from the most basic level, which is one that we've really seen over the last year with the pandemic, is actual just core childcare. And I think, you know, so- societies require people who are responsible for looking after that community's children. Uh, to to free up the free up the community, and actually we've seen that when when schools closed, uh, the most basic thing was that suddenly parents were at a loss of how to manage the actual care of their child. So it's almost like a an outsourcing of some of the uh, roles of the kind of extended family, and um, and I think yeah we we can easily lose track of that one because it takes it's taken as a given, but we've been reminded of that. So that's number one. Um, the second one is um, I think. Probably another practical one, which is, I mean, the Secretary of State for Education recently cited this one as his his top one, which is about preparation for the labour market uh, and employability. Um, So it's a that's a that's just a a core kind of uh, basic practical one. Um, And then kind of moving moving across to the the sort of deeper things, I think. And you then have a question of um, kind of justice um, and and tackling the kind of accident of birth. And um, so this is about kind of generating equity in a society. The idea that you know, a child is born with the right to, um, to, to as much as anyone else. And that who, what opportunities you have shouldn't depend on who you were born to. And therefore that our state should do something uh, to ensure that there is an equalization of, of opportunities um, and that everyone gets at least some kind of core basic um, to, to equip them. Um, so that's another one. And then last two, I think uh, one is around kind of state building. So I think we have to a, a state in a country and a community is quite a, a, an incoherent thing potentially, um, and and we actually need to build ties between us and and create what is it to be in it together and be be one community, one society, one nation. It is almost quite a, and that can, that can actually you know spread into quite nationalistic or quite patriotic things, but it can also be quite a kind of communitarian and, and quite a, a, a social, a, about social trust and cohesion. Um, and perhaps the most intangible of all, I guess, is about helping us all to, to flourish, uh, to kind of human progress, knowledge, wisdom. Uh, so, you know, how can that kind of idea of humans having their mind always, always elevated to what, how can we learn more, how can we understand our world, how can we strive to, to be greater than, than we were. Um, and education as this emancipatory thing that helps us to, to become more than more than we might be otherwise. Yeah.
1: What a shame that that's the least, <laughs> the, the, the most intangible one because I feel like it probably sound, <laughs> sounds the nicest of, of all of them. But um, yeah, 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 it's that, it till last. to it so last. Yeah, yeah, everyone can kind of linger <laughs> on that one. <laughs> yeah, some yeah. food for thought. Um, that's really incredible actually and I thought I'd kind of thought of all the different reasons and I still feel a bit like you kind of put some some stuff out there that I wouldn't immediately have have jumped to or that maybe people wouldn't immediately jump to um so you did touch there on justice um on like leveling the playing field and this idea of kind of you know not having people determined by the so-called accident of their birth right and so that's maybe one of the Pros um, of having this like state education and maybe at least having a baseline that all schools have to follow or a certain, let's call it like actual dictation from our governments on how they should mm. do that. But like, what are the, what is the tension or the pros and cons between having something that perhaps on some level is dictated and is set for everybody, you know, like, you know, the sense of kind of freedom and education versus justice and fairness and it not just being left up to how you know a certain teachers bias or you know opinions or personal you know characteristics as to how what they might teach and when we do set that national standard is it set based on anything specific like as I often think of the French like Egalité, um, liberty, like liberty, you know, mm. like the kind of like equality, liberty, like uh, secularism or whatever that they sort of throw yeah. around as a slogan. And I couldn't really think if we had something like that in in yeah. uh, Britain, you know, that is like our grounding principles that make sure that we have a national curriculum that's not just determined by different political parties and their ideologies.
3: So I think what we do have is that those five different purposes for education get sort of dialed up and dialed down in different. In different periods of time and under different governments and so on uh, so so they changed their priority but i think that ultimately i think a national curriculum is important because i think if a, if a state is going to decide that it is going to provide an education it needs to think okay this is this is a, a question for society and there should be democratic accountability to what we want our education system to do and um, so from a kind of from a kind of ideological perspective in terms of agreeing what we want as a society, I think it's quite important to have that. Um, and secondly, you then come to much more practical things about if you decide what the goals are, actually it's not a curriculum also tells you how to achieve those goals. Um, and on some one hand, some people say, oh, we should just leave, leave it up to teachers to work out how to achieve those goals. But the thing is education is a lot more complicated than people think it is, I think. Um, and actually, if every teacher just decides for themselves how to achieve those goals, firstly, it takes more than than one individual's understanding of how to get there. You know, there's a lot of research on how best to achieve different goals. We don't know. We don't always know. And we have to. You, we, when we design a curriculum, we partly think about what is the best order in which to sequence the different things that that kids should learn uh, what there's also prioritization and, and how do we decide what to prioritize because you can make an endless list of all the things you think kids should learn um, but actually it's it, you can't do all of those things so at some point a decision needs to make about being made about prioritization and i don't think that is just a decision for individual individual teachers um, and there's a lot of skilled thinking that needs to go into that so I think that the design of the curriculum needs to be a very intentional very well researched and very well thought through thing uh, rather than it just being down down to individual teachers although obviously whilst you know leaving them to, to the flexibility to work out what's going to what's going how best to apply that to that particular classes so using, using their professional skills.
1: So how much freedom look, would you say, at the moment, teachers do have in a state school? um, You know, obviously, we know that there are also private schools and so on, but in our sort of most basic state schools managed by our local authorities. um, What is that kind of balance between freedom and and actually is even that dependent on what state school um, you might be in?
3: There's actually quite a lot of freedom. It's particularly, I mean, you mentioned they're run by local authorities and you have to bear in mind that most, most schools are not run by, well, a large proportion of schools are not, not run by local authorities now, academies can don't need to follow all the curriculum and so on. And um, so there is actually, in theory, quite a lot of flexibility. The issue is that because we, it's not just what the curriculum tells you on paper that you have to do. It's also about the accountability. So we have our fed, we have national exams and we have school league tables. Um, and if, uh, if it's perceived that you have to do certain things in order to, for, uh, to, to do well under Ofsted and in order to do well in the exams that you have to, your pupils have to sit, then actually, even if you're told you've got freedom to teach how you want, you don't in practice have as much. And um, g- generally, I think there's more freedom, say, in a school that's already getting good results, that's you know, got a good Ofsted inspection. At that point, it, I think our system sort of says, well, look, you seem to be doing a good job, so we'll leave you to it. Um, where, where there's a lot less freedom is if the school's not getting great results or it's had a poor Ofsted inspection, then, then people say, well, it's, it, it's a question of kind of earned freedom almost. Um, and, and at that point, our system says, actually, you, you're, not, you're not delivering the goods and therefore you don't necessarily have a right to exercise that much freedom. So, there's a kind of perceived lack of freedom, and there's also a practical lack of freedom where a school has, isn't achieving results that um, it might, might
1: need to. So, you mentioned earlier something around um, democratic accountability, right? We have a state education system, um, which is paid for by our taxes, and it's meant to serve us all. And so, therefore, there has to be a way in a democratic system to hold those, that system to account, right? Um, And we've been exploring democracy um, quite broadly in our last, you know, quite handful of episodes, both from its actual founding principles to how it then applies to things like workplaces and and so on. So how, um, I mean, I guess, first of all, how do schools function as a vehicle for teaching children? About our democratic system preparing them to participate in it? Um, is that what they is that what they should do? You were a citizenship teacher. Um, so is that actually part of its role? Should it? Um, and therefore, I guess by teaching young people how to take part in democracy, that furthers into people eventually knowing how to hold their systems and their institutions democratically to account. Um, but also, how can schools again? teach about something like that, which obviously does have a political basis to it, in a quote-unquote just practical or neutral way without promoting any one ideology, I guess, you know, and does the way that schools do that differ when they are being managed by different governments?
3: Yeah, I'm a massive believer in the importance of citizenship education, not necessarily in the way that it's currently taught in some schools, because it's never... Unfortunately, it's, it's not prioritized. And it's, it had a period in when, I was, when I trained as a citizenship teacher in which the government was really backing citizenship education and investing in it. And, it's really, and, and it takes a while to get, um, get a new subject like citizenship was at the time to, to be well taught, to get enough teachers who are skilled in teaching it and so on. So, unfortunately, overall, the quality of citizenship teaching wasn't wasn't great. And as a result, I think it it lost some of its credibility. A lot of pupils will have had really bad citizenship lessons and therefore see it as a waste of time. Um, But I think it's incredibly important that we find a way of doing it better. Like If you look across the world, most countries will have some form of civic education or social sciences. I called it social sciences, actually, when I was teaching, because I think that's one way of thinking about it is, is humanity, is social sciences, civics, but, you know, these are all related concepts. And um, so I think we should be doing that because I think it, yeah, one of those purposes of education I mentioned was about state building. And and I think that is about empowering people uh, to go on to be, a, a, be citizens of a country who understand how their country works and how they can influence it. And I got a message recently from a former pupil uh, when it was, it, when, when there were all the debates going on about Brexit and he said, Oh, None of my friends who weren't taught by you know what a referendum is or know anything about it. I'm so glad that you taught us about, re- what, about referenda. You know, that was, that was a, a core thing we studied and that he therefore understood the advantages and disadvantages of referenda, the, the problems that it might cause when you when you have a referendum and people can't agree and so on. Um, so these, these are crucial things we should be teaching people as part of, as part of building, building a society. But it takes a lot of skill to do well. Um, And that's where your question about how to do it and how to manage bias and so on comes in. So when I was training as specifically a citizenship teacher, this was a thing that was a major part of the subject training. So we'd talk about how to do that. And there were different schools of thought about how to do it. So, for example, some teachers will refuse to say what they think about something and will just try their very best to explain different sides of something. Others will say... This is what I think, this is why people disagree with me, and go for that kind of approach. So, those are, for example, two different schools of thought on how to manage uh, your own opinions when you're teaching about politics. Uh, if you're training as a citizenship teacher, you spend time practicing those two different approaches, working out which works for you, watching each other teach uh, and critiquing each other and how you're doing it. You know, I trained lots of citizenship teachers too, and I watched them doing this, and as part of their training in order to qualify. I fed back to them on the way they were managing that. So it's really hard, but it's a skill. And like any skill, you have to learn it and you have to train for it. But you can only do that if you have teachers who's, who's, whose job it is to, to manage their stuff.
1: Yeah, and I guess that loops back around to hopefully they've had a good enough education themselves at some point to be able to manage that when they become teachers, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which Um, is where
3: your subject knowledge training comes in, right? If you're a citizenship specialist, I had to audit my knowledge of citizenship and political literacy, find the gaps and fill them. And so, you know, as part of my training, I was like, okay, this term, I'm going to focus on this topic, which I don't know enough about. um, and, And I'm going to have to learn that and demonstrate that I have... Patched, patched, up that uh, gap in my knowledge. Can't do that if you're not training specialist.
1: Honestly, like that is just so heartening to hear when we all also, re- well, I, f- I hope people realise how hard of a job teaching already is and how many hours it already takes out of people and to hear that people, the teachers still care that much about what it is that they're imparting and, and that's a really, really like amazing thing to, to be witness to. Um, <laughs> And I guess it does also get us onto, and I maybe don't want to get into a rabbit hole here, but it, this idea of whether we're teaching skills and methodologies or content, right? So like, are you teaching content such as this is the God and this is what this book of religion says? Or are you teaching critical thinking? Like, this is how you might ask questions of a religion and this is how you might reach your own ideas of what you believe in. And so those are also two different things, I guess, right? The method, the methods we teach and the exact facts and figures and, com, you know, subjects that we teach.
3: They are to some extent, but I think you're much better equipped to do some of that weighing up and that critiquing if, if you have the requisite knowledge to to understand, to understand it and, and weigh it up. And I think that to try and teach those, those skills in isolation without, without the knowledge that you need in order to, to, to navigate difficult territory well that you know that knowledge allows sets that is like a map that you can use to to explore that territory so i think sometimes people make a mistake and i actually made this as a teacher i think is sometimes just focusing on let's have a debate about this but actually my people i hadn't yet taught my people enough about it for them to be able to do very well in those debates because there were too many misconceptions or, or or gaps in my knowledge
1: so okay so now so we've gotten onto a bit about how a curriculum might be shaped how teachers might get trained um how we might then hold a curriculum to account nationally how we might hold an individual school to account which might get done by a body like ofsted and how you then might hold individual teachers to account and so on so i guess that does move us into that bigger picture that you spoke about and the idea of policy and how policies formed um and i guess again i kind of want to try and get right into the basics of it like we we use the word policy um but actually what is policy like I remember when I worked in social policy I did have and you know fairly educated friends say to me what is policy like what is policy development what is it you know and I'd be like oh it's kind of like systems and, and ideas and whatever that a government might use to run a country but what is policy what does it mean to influence policy what does it mean to then research policy who does the researching who do they give the research to etc cetera, etc cetera. like this is yeah. your work now how might an average person understand that
3: yeah this is such a good question and so I'm going to write a, I'm going to be writing a book next year called how education and youth policy happens um, so uh, it's I'm going to have to come up with a good definition as part of that and I'm not there yet so I'm only I haven't yet started so ask me in a year's time I might have a better answer but um, generally, I mean, policy is about, it's a kind of guiding set of principles that are held by an organization. So I think that's the important thing is that it's not an individual, it's an organization. So, you know, you can have a school policy, you can have a school unicorn policy, right? You can have a, a, a local council's policy, or you can have a national government's policy. And it's 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 principles for, for what actions it's going to take, so it guides them. And... Um, but generally and often when, when definitions of policy are given, they talk about those kind of guiding principles and the goals at that high level. But there is also a dimension which is about the kind of implementation and how you're going to achieve it. So it's, it's what you're trying to achieve and how you think you're going to achieve it. So you take something like, um, you know, we've got a new policy recently from the government about, around teacher training. And it said this is what we want to do to, about with the school workforce. Uh, you know, this is these are our goals for what teachers should be like and how how we're going to staff our schools, and then here are the sets of the types of actions that we as an organisation as a government want to pursue in order to make that happen. So yeah, that those kind of guiding principles and, and your kind of plan for how you're going to get there. So a plan for what to do is one way of thinking about it. So an organi- at, at an organisation level.
1: Um, I guess let's focus in on education policy then. Um which for the purposes of this debate, we imagine as being set by our governments, maybe then sometimes at a slightly more local level, also to some extent influenced by a local council and then into into schools and then possibly influenced by the leadership team of that school, right? But if we sort of look at education policy in that way, um, how might people influence education policy? How might you do that if you're a student um, wanting to influence your own school or a parent? or a teacher wanting to push up at government and say, I don't like the way the curriculum is going, or I guess just a member of the public who probably then also is a parent or a student maybe themselves, but how might that happen for us? Yeah.
3: So there's loads of different kind of influences on on, on policy. Um, but I think that um, firstly, at a very top level, you have kind of what are the, of my, say, take my five uh, and original purposes for education or things that we might be setting out to do. The big thing is which of those gets prioritized and that's down to which government gets elected. So it's a very basic level. You have an influence over policy. Once you're allowed to vote, so um, adults are able to influence it um, by, by voting and, and campaigning for, for parties and so on. But that's at a very, very top level. You don't really know what kind of education policy you're gonna end up with based on that. Um, after that, you've got organizations that influence government and some of those are some of those are more open and accessible than others. So you know we have a lot of think tanks like like FEY um, that, that are involved in influencing policy and they have an ability to do that through their relationships with government, through the research they do and so on. Um, and there, individuals can get involved by being involved in research. So, you know, we do lots and lots of studies, which we, we consult people, we do focus groups, all of that kind of stuff, all of that can feed in. It's quite hard to do very directly as an individual. You can, you know, you can write letters, you can sign petitions, all of those things allow you to have some influence, but, but it's quite, quite hard to. I think one thing that people do is often band together in order to have influence. So if you take teachers, they join together in teaching unions sometimes in order to influence policy. Um, or they might join particular in special interest groups who, all, who share a belief that education should look, uh, look in one way or another. Um, and that allows them to kind of use their collective strength uh, to do that. And that I, I think it's that's a thing that can be quite hard um, for pupils to do because there aren't that, that many bodies for doing that. But I think that you do see, I guess, if you take examples like the you know, UK Youth Parliament and those types of bodies, and um, they offer one way of, of doing that because they do have at least at least some some voice there. But I think it, it is really hard for young people and um, to have an in, an influence. Um, but definitely, I think, the kind of collective and joining together with others is a really important thing.
1: Can you think of any, like, recent successful examples of that, Lloyd? Like, maybe a particular campaign that did actually manage to change something in our education system that we could draw upon in recent memory?
3: Yeah, I think that, um, so not so much, unfortunately, young person-driven ones, but um, they're what they're, I think the teaching unions were quite effective in the school cuts campaign they recently did campaign against cuts to school funding, um, and what they did there was they joined together across several unions and with other, other, other people who cared about this issue, so it meant that you had quite a broad group who were all, all doing this. I think they also tapped into the power of parents. Now, one thing about education policy is that people think that teachers have a lot of influence, but actually, certainly the current government is, slightly, is more interested in what parents think, because there are a lot more parents than there are teachers, and parents are voting in elections. So government really cares about what parents do. So what the, that campaign did very cleverly was to help mobilize parents. So what they did was they set up a website where you could put in your postcode and found out how much your child's school was gonna lose, lose out under, under government proposals. And that meant that it got parents really angry and parents wrote to their MPs and parents were engaged in the issue and so on. And all of that made it much harder for the government not to, to, to support schools with funding. But of course that doesn't mean that you know schools funding has, inc- has been properly increased or and so on but the thing with policy is that you can't always think of it as like did this happen or did this not happen it's this gradual process of nudging and I think that's one of the things that people forget about policy is that it's not did you make this things happen people often ask me for examples of you know policies we made happen at FEY, and there are some but actually our biggest successes are to do with like nudging it and I call it like the kind of zeitgeist which is a sort of spirit and kind of vibe of where things are going and and actually things like this can really shape that are you creating an environment where the government can cut funding for schools or where it's harder for them to cut funding for schools so yeah you might not stop it but you can change the environment
1: no definitely i think we really have to sometimes remind ourselves of that if we do take a five-year snapshot or a 10-year snapshot or whatever actually quite a lot of things do change in some ways and i um so look, I just want to touch on one other thing in terms of now we've spoken about, I guess again, how um, how we might have some control over our state schools or our national curriculum as long as they are within state control and as long as they are within public control. But there is quite a lot of like talk now around this idea of commercialization of education. Um, we've heard about a lot of schools becoming academies, which although still free, to the user um, are run in a different model. So maybe what's, you know, state schools used to be. And as you said, you referenced earlier, a lot of schools are now not managed by local authorities anymore. Um, and so I think there is this area where we're not quite talking private schools. We're not talking that level of like money, monetization or whatever of education, but we are talking about it in a lot of other ways, including obviously massive hikes in tuition fees and universities operating more as businesses and so on. Like what, I mean, A, Is that happening? Um, B, why might it be? Does it have any pros and cons? And does that, again, does that remove us further from having influence and democratic accountability of our like school system if it starts to enter almost like the free market?
3: The premise behind a lot of, I'd call it kind of diversification of the system really uh, is is around the idea that um, if you bring in more people to run schools uh then you can you you'll have some which end up doing doing better when we can then grow those and have more of them run by people who are better at it whereas before if you had say a school that was in a local authority that was not a very good local authority you didn't really have an alternative you were stuck there um and actually there was less choice uh and less less possibility of, of of getting someone better to better to run it um and so the idea is that, you know, you can, you can say, actually, this school this, this is this school's not doing very well. Let's get someone else in who can do it better and, and let's let's then grow it. You know, or you could have a really effective local authority, but it couldn't actually... You, you wanted to grow that one, but it was geographically constrained, even if there was a, road, a school down the road that could really benefit from the support of that local authority. And so the idea of getting, you know, a range of different charities to run schools uh, was that. Now, there's been loads of problems with, with making that happen, uh, and, yet, and there's all sorts of reasons why that doesn't always work, because there's you know, schools that no one wants to run, uh, there's a lot of waste in the system, and actually when you have diversification, uh, you can also end up having even greater inequality because you can have some of them being really bad and some of them being really good. So, but it's not the same as privatisation, for sure, because what you've got is you've still got it's the government who decides which organisation to give the contract to, to run a school. Uh, so, actually, the government has quite a lot of power there, and indirectly, therefore, if you're, if you're holding the government to account. So, you know, if we say, actually, we want more schools to be like this, then you, can, then you can say, okay, we'll award more contracts for running schools to people who run schools like that. So, in a way, it gives you that, that much flexibility, but you have still then got these, so some quite large organizations, which are not necessarily very easy for people to access. Uh, um, so you've got you've got some real
1: advantages and disadvantages to this kind of system. So look, I guess if people are listening, um, and you know we're, we're we're always very keen on encouraging action from this podcast. Um, you said you're a think and action tank. Mm-hmm. Um, if people are listening and they you know maybe want to start somewhere, maybe they're not the most you know. Um, like veteran kind of activists or people that have you know massively been involved in campaigning or shaping policies or anything before in their lives Um, if they did want to improve something in our schooling system, um, either a bit more nationally, or perhaps just in their own schools. Um, what might be some of the quite basic steps that people could take to set themselves up for that.
3: And um, so my starting point on this ever be ex teacher would be knowledge of power. And so the more you can, you can learn about this stuff and understand it and, and come equipped with, the right, with more knowledge on it, the better. So if you have an idea for what, what things should be like, try, firstly, find out why things aren't like that. Because you're probably not the first person to have had the idea. So it, there may be a good reason or there may be a bad reason why things aren't that way. So you want to understand the reasons uh, why, why your idea hasn't happened in the past. Um, so yeah, forewarned is forearmed. Uh, and then I would say, go and find people who share the same point of view as you and, and band together, because as an individual, you only have a certain amount of power. And um, so there will, you know, there will be others who share, share your views. And by joining together, you can have a lot more influence. And try and build a coalition of people who you know, include parents, include teachers, include pupils, because if you can get that kind of broad set of agreement, uh, then that can, that can really help. And then finally, understand the political agendas that are driving stuff. Um, you know, There's a lot of people who will say things like, oh, if only politicians weren't so political about education. And it's like, well, it's, it's their job to be political. So you, you need to understand what agenda they're currently working on. Because if you want to get them to do something, then you need to find a way of making it align with or challenging their current, their current agenda. So, yeah, don't, don't just have an idea and then, and then bang the drum find out more about, about it, find out more about who agrees with you, find out more about how it sits with with the current, current debate.
1: Um, and so I guess on that note, I'm going to ask you, we ask everyone we speak to on this podcast this question, but um, when, if ever, do you think your work will no longer be needed?
3: So, I don't know, I think it... I think it always will be, I'm afraid, because I think that our work is about helping people to get better and helping systems to get better. And things can always be better, right? Like, I don't think there's ever going to be a point where you go like, oh, no, things can't be any better than this. Uh, so, so long as things could be better, then I think it's our job to, uh, to keep pushing things to get better.
2: So this week I'm speaking to Mark Schwetz, a religious studies and psychology teacher at a state secondary school in Brighton. Mark's been teaching for six years and prioritises the teaching of critical thinking, empathy and empowerment, as he believes that they are skills that every student should have. Now, teaching within a state school system means that Mark has to follow the national curriculum, but we chose him because he's found ways to push the boundaries of what this looks like and what it means. Now, outside of the classroom, he's active in trying to change attitudes towards the LGBTQIA community within education and especially within his subject, where many contentious views still exist. In his spare time, which I'm really surprised he has any of, he's also an amateur jungle and drum and bass DJ. Sounds like the coolest teacher on earth, really. (laughs) Let's hear what Mark has to say.
0: Education should be a way to empower people to change their lives and change the society and make the world a better place. That sounds like cliched, like uh, sound bites, but I really do think, at its best, education is, you know, is a, the uh, the doorway to be able to uh, do really, really important things with your life and with society. And it's become too much about, you know, getting a job and getting a career and jumping through hoops and doing exams, and not actually about. All the things that, you know, people thought to have education to begin with was not about getting a career. It was about being able to learn about the world and to do better in it.
2: And you've hinted a little bit there at the end of your answer. So I think I know what you're going to say. But do you feel that our schooling system here in the UK is currently meeting this purpose or in fact a schooling system anywhere in the world?
0: Um, I I don't think it is. I, I would not want to speak um, uh, for all teachers in the country. I think teaching in general is a very progressive profession. We are very hard done by, by a government that doesn't see the value in teachers and treats teachers really badly. Um, and I think it's also you know part of the fact our system is our education system is just outdated it is a system that was created for the industrial age when people were moved from school into specific jobs into factories etc etc the whole you know minutely controlled system of surveillance that Foucault would be proud of that our education system is focused on it is literally just control of every minute of the day it doesn't give students the feeling that they have freedom I understand there's a need for order I get that you need to have some kind of control otherwise you can't do mass education in a way that a school like mine has 1700 students it's just not possible if you don't but the way uh, what the system does i don't think it's fit for purpose and i don't think it in it allows students to really think critically i think my subject is one of a subject that really can do that a bit more it's down to and we'll talk about that later that like the freedom curriculum wise in religious studies is way beyond what most subjects have so i think that does allow that but in general no and i don't want that to be in any pick finger pointing at teachers teachers do the best they can in a system they have very little control over
2: You made a really important distinction there between teaching and teachers and the system so what role in your opinion do teachers play in all of this?
0: Um, Yeah I think sometimes we can feel just like the pawns of of the system that are there as tools to just make sure students cram and learn um, and get all the information in to spew out an exam. I think teachers are educators, social workers, mental health specialists, counsellors, like behavioural specialists, all of everything, you know, we encompass like a multitude of roles. Um, and I think many of them are justifiable roles. I think we have to, you know, as a form tutor, my job is very different than in the classroom. Like there are multiple roles. I think we do too much, but yeah, we should be giving students the tools to be able to live in this world in the most successful way possible. Whatever that means that does, for me, that does doesn't mean a career and a uh, uh, like good job and a fancy house that means being able to actually positively impact on life I'm not saying that every student needs feels a response that should have a responsibility to positively impact in the world that's not what I mean but we should be giving people the tools to be able to do that
2: I mean definitely a lot of the things you spoke about were if people didn't already know they were highlighted and thrown into the forefront over this last year and a half Um, the importance and the role of teachers in young people's lives and I mean I know I was struck by how much teachers had on their shoulders and how many teachers actually weren't even immediately concerned with the loss of education or the loss of face-to-face education but actually were like I'm worried because I know I'm the one consistent person in x young person's life and I'm a school is a safe haven for this young person and all of those things outside of actually i'm teaching them algebra that you might <laughs> traditionally think yeah. a teacher does um well really became stark in this last year i think yeah. um when when that was sort of taken away
0: yeah completely
2: so let's move on to the all-important curriculum you mentioned it just briefly there <laughs> and we've just had a section where we've learned what exactly the curriculum is but i want to explore the real life impact that it has on a teacher and their students. One of the reasons we chose you is because we know that you're very committed to your subject and that you find great ways to plan your lessons and make them explore all of the things you've spoken about um, but it would be really interesting to learn how much freedom you have to design these lessons and how you go about it.
0: My subject is not representative of many other subjects in that respect because it's the only subject at secondary school that does not have a national curriculum that you have to follow. You have what is called, are called locally agreed syllabuses and that, I, that was an idea that was created um, about 30 years ago because it wanted to reflect the fact that the local areas around the country are very different when it comes to cultural, ethnic, religious backgrounds. Therefore, there wanted to be some flexibility within that. That does not mean that you then have certain groups who try to force their Way into making curriculums more, uh, you know, heavy in terms of a certain religion, and there are some issues with that. But it was more about to show that we have a multiplicity of identities in this country, and it needs to be more sensitive and reflective of that. What that has been meant very positively is that we have a kind of each town and city has its own syllabus, but you can you it's kind of guidance. You need to cover, you know, a, a range of different religions. You need to talk about ethics. You need to talk about, you know, citizenship identity. Entity, you know, belonging, all these things, but how you do that is very much up to you. So we, you know, that's why it's a great school, and our school has always been really proud of doing very good religious studies. It's meant that we can, you know, bring together all our knowledge, experience, backgrounds and be able to actually plan really, really effective curric- curriculum. That does mean that our other schools, when You know, you don't have specialists. We're a department of like eight specialist RS trained teachers, whereas you don't need to necessarily be one. You don't need any uh, technical qualifications to be a teacher nowadays. The government got rid of that with academies. But what it does mean is our subject can be brushed under other carpets sometimes and I think it's been quite a battle to defend the distinctiveness of religious studies for quite a long time because people don't really know what it is sometimes and they're unsure and they think it's very prescriptive and teaching you about religion. Well, it's not. It's teaching you about other ways of thinking and reflecting on your own way of thinking understanding the deep, big questions about life, about yourself, about the way you should treat other people. You know, it is a really incredibly important subject. Um, but we do have the freedom there. And, you know, I when I was in my entity year and even to now, like I will be given kind of, you know, what the topic of a lesson is, we'll plan what the kind of structure is and then teachers have freedom to plan within that what they want. So for instance, with a new year 10, like core curriculum, we just finished doing technology and ethics unit. So looking at kind of, know lots of things around you know technology and social media artificial intelligence but areas that actually you can bring your own knowledge and experience in and they actually really really like open their eyes to some very very different areas like you know medical ethics as well within that genetic engineering all these things are, are going to be important things in the future that's fantastic there's not many subjects that you could go right I want I want to plan a unit on technology and ethics and I can then go and plan and deliver it it's it's wonderful to have that freedom. Um, it's slightly annoying when certain lessons don't get received by students the way you want. It's like, damn it, I was really interested in that. <laughs> it just went over their head. But um, it's still, you know, it's that it's exposing people, students to different knowledge, different areas, things that actually, you know, that's a link to what we were saying before. It's part of le- like education is to go, well, you might not be fascinated by these things yet, but but give people the opportunity to do that.
2: It's really energising to listen to you, Mark, and see how passionate and excited you get when talking about your subjects and planning your subject. And I love the idea of the localised adaptations. I hadn't heard of that before. Um, and yeah. the obvious freedoms that are attached to your subject. I mean, I know you said it's sort of quite unique to the subject that you're teaching, but what is the experience, if you have had this conversation, of some of your colleagues? Do they feel the same level of freedom or do they feel quite frustrated and restricted by the
0: curriculum do you know I haven't had too many conversations with uh, the colleagues in different departments however I do know for instance like obviously because we're in humanities I do see people in humanities more like geography for instance you know I found out recently they do a whole like three lessons on the Israel-Palestine conflict which could easily be done in RS but and could also be done in history there was the thing they do um poppies and heroin trade within like Afghanistan and i was saying like, it's just not something I would have expected to see in like year nine geography but I was like that's that's amazing that they are actually you know and that's again down to department heads and departments that go actually these are things that uh, can be chosen again it's reflective of a really kind of positive progressive school I work at but you know there is there is leeway
2: Yeah, I mean, it's great to hear how teachers are being creative and sort of adapting to the restraints that are in place. Um, I hope none of my former teachers are listening, but I don't remember that being anything from the agenda of my geography classes. Um, So so that sounds really, really cool. Um, You mentioned earlier, actually, the idea that you feel that maybe your subject is slightly brushed under the carpet or that it isn't viewed as, as important as some other subjects. And I think it's interesting because... The disciplines that are given sort of focus and priority are literally ancient like it's from ancient greek that we kind of society carried the idea that science maths and literature are the most important disciplines um and even in the modern day some of the things that we're learning and that are prioritized just feel very ancient rather than learning about stuff like workers rights women's rights um civil rights movement we're learning over and over again about the Tudors and the Victorians and not that those aren't important things but it does feel like the education system has a way to catch up when it comes to what we're thinking about and what we're learning. What do you think are maybe the implications of this? I mean, it's exciting to hear that teachers are adapting this and starting to bring different, more modern ideas to the forefront. And like you spoke about bringing IT into RE and stuff like that, that really excites me. But yeah, what do you think is the implication of prioritizing still these subjects in the modern age?
0: e-back subjects are like the, the ones that count most in for like grading when you go to to a level so it's maths english science geography history modern foreign language they are like the top ones and it uh, religious studies teachers across the country were really frustrated with the fact that rs was not the only humanities that was not put in that bucket here. so basically is already as you say it's a prioritization prioritization of certain subjects as the ones that are you know, they'll say they're not given more value, but of course they are. Like, If you're saying that these are the ones that you are the most, the priority that sick forms are looking for most, then they are clearly the ones that are getting more value. And that, does, that creates a very unnecessary division within secondary schools in terms of, well, they get the most time they get the most uh, kind of focus on timetabling they in terms of exams when they have all, all these things throughout the year that you see certain priorities and who decides that who decides that the prioritization it's you know it's governments and michael gove basically who and his reforms wanted those you know wants it what's massively like the chinese system so very rote very repetitive etc Yes, they get amazing results in China, but it's a very, very different cultural system and education. So there's a lot of Britain wanting to catch up, so we need to focus on certain subjects. What that means for actually the breadth and diversity of learning, you know, it's amazing. Our school has so many options subjects at GCSE, like philosophy, psychology, sociology, astronomy, environmental science, all these things that I would have loved to do at second school. That's fantastic. They've got them. But. Many schools are massively reducing their options subjects now because of the the huge amount of curriculum time that it takes to teach science. Now it's like ridiculous ridiculous amount of knowledge. It immediately it shuts out all the other subjects because it's like well you need to focus on your maths, English, science, etc. So it has a real knock on effect for students ability to just explore different subjects because i always say even even a level you can choose subjects just because you like them but i think for options at GCSE, that's one of the last times where you the first and last times you can just choose a subject because you it sounds fascinating and you just want to explore it and you know i see with my psychology students they love it because it's a brand new subject they've never learned it before and it's new and that's that wonderful learning we need more of that And I think given the freedom, when students feel like they have a freedom, I've chosen this subject because I want to learn it. Oh, it it pays dividends in terms of engagement, in terms of like the likelihood that you just get better learning, I think, because there's so many restrictions in school. Students don't feel like they have that freedom. One
2: of the main sort of marketing tools of the curriculum, I think, and the main positives that are pushed is the idea that the curriculum equals the playing field. And I know that you've, talked about um your school being particularly good in giving you freedom and um having specialist teachers that allow you to really explore and bend and further the curriculum and exploit it but do you think there's any weight to that principle that we need a sort of standard set of rules that everyone follows so that children are getting some form of an equal education or do you think that that's not really the case
0: I, what you're hitting on is issues of structural inequality when it comes to the education system and the postcode lottery of where students go. I think, you know, I, I do understand that there needs to be a standard of some kind if you are you know, saying everyone needs to learn certain things, but how how is that standard measured? I don't think that standard is measured in the right ways. I think lead tables is the main way that uh, things are measured. Um, and I have to say, it's one of the whether whether this is ever going to really be uh, like bare fruit, because we haven't had, obviously, had two years of very different education. But Ofsted have recently changed part of their, their inspection process to focus much more on curriculum and not on outcomes and progress that yeah the whole focus on lead tables that ultimately the only thing that ever I will ever really get judged on teaching wise is whether my students got like how many eights or nines but actually it is a positive thing whatever I don't want to pop like uh shower praise on offset in any way because they're just part of the system but the, the focusing more on curriculum is important and I think that there shows that they are willing to accept more diversity and less standardization but yeah I do see the value in a standardization but unless you get ridden and challenge so many other inequalities in our society that's it's it's going to be down to schools areas teachers and it just yeah it does mean a a quite difficult um and ongoing inequalities when it comes to uh how you actually put it into practice yes I
2: mean speaking of wider society we've been exploring the concept of democracy of late. And I in particular, the audience will agree, have been harping on about the place of schools in providing a foundational education in politics and citizenship. And I know you said that that's an element of what you teach um when i was in school which wasn't so long ago but having this conversation i'm starting to feel very old because in my day it was definitely a's and b's rather than eights and nines and sevens and all these things <laughs> but um, when i was in school it wasn't a compulsory part of the curriculum i i elected to t- um, to study it at a level so when i was 16 plus what does that look like now and uh, what do you think the places is of politics in mainstream education
0: i I think it 100% is the right place. I think it's something that interesting, like in terms of duality, that we also have a government that is more and more pressing the requirement for teachers to be completely politically neutral, to not declare anything or teach anything that might be considered to be politically biased in any way, which, but in itself is already being politically biased. Um, You... So it is interesting that, yeah, you want to, I think we absolutely should be providing the, the tools for students to understand politics more and understand the political landscape of our society. But then it also, teachers aren't allowed to then dictate or teach about things that are, have any kind of nuance within that. So I'm not even meant to be teaching about, like, white privilege. They're, you know, shouldn't be teaching anything that, you know, talks or promotes any idea of socialism or Marxism. It just, you know... The kind of worrying level of uh, kind of censorship, which, I, you know, I'm not talking... The people who decry censorship are often also people who just want to be bigoted and discriminatory, so I'm not saying that. I think it's being able to actually go... I can state a perspective without me promoting that perspective that's an important part of teaching like if it wasn't the case every time i talk about christianity people would think that i'm telling people to be christian that's not it's perfectly possible to give people an education and give people ideas without promoting them but so i think school definitely is the place to, uh, to enlighten young people about politics 100 but that's becoming an increasingly uh, Dangerous thing if you want to try to do things in a critical way. You know, that's one of the most important parts of my job is teaching critical thinking, and you can't teach politics for me without then teaching something in a critical way.
2: How did you know, Mark, that critical thinking is what I wanted to come on to next? And I find it fascinating what you just spoke about in terms of political neutrality because like you identified, literally everything is political. So this sort of idea that neutrality is the status quo and maintaining the status quo and promoting the status quo is ludicrous because that's not neutral in any way, shape or form, is it? Um, And actually maybe censorship is a good good thing to combine with critical thinking because for me, critical thinking is really important, maybe the most important thing we can learn in school outside of actual... Um, complete right or wrongs or absolutes is the idea of just being taught how to think and actually something you said struck a chord with me because we had a guest on a couple of episodes talking about um, the media and how to democratize the media and she made the statement ban nothing but challenge everything in um, when referring to censorship and she actually said the most effective way to eradicate things like hate speech or identify things like fake news is actually to allow everything to exist But to teach people to think critically so that they can disseminate what is what, rather than to say we're going to decide what should be out there and filter filter things which doesn't work. Um, So I guess my question in that sense is, and you've already spoken to it, but yeah, what do you think is the power of critical thinking? How do you try and include that in your lessons and what can we do to make schools a place where critical thinking is taught rather than absolute rights and wrongs, which I think is what things like results Curriculums, um, tables, standardized testing encourages.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, you made a lot of fa- fantastic points. I completely agree with, um, and I think you know um, the the thing you were talking, you mentioned as well about how how you actually go about critical thinking. Critical thinking is a process of thought, and it's a it's a, yeah, it's a process. It's something that you need to learn how to do, and it's something that you can then apply to every area of life. Um, And I think, you know, my subject is a really important one, you know, when... uh we do the ethics philosophy unit and then the ethics unit as well, you know, looking at a range of ethical issues going, well, I know what my opinion might be now. I might not know any, anything about it at all, but we're going to look at a range of different opinions on it. You're going to get facts, you're going to get evidence, you're going to get alternative points of view, you're going to get to discuss with the person next to you and other groups, and then you will have a range of arguments that then you might be able to reach more of a reasoned conclusion on what you think, but if you still need to go and find out more, then please go and find out more. That should be the starting point. It shouldn't be the end point. And I always highlight the difference between an opinion and an informed opinion. And it's something that many people don't, many adults don't see that difference. Every opinion has equal validity and it's just not true. You know, we live in a world of post expertise where any person can declare something and it can be of equal value. That's as you said, that person shouldn't be shut down, that person should be challenged. That person should be challenged in a positive and respectful way and not get those kind of social media things where people just feel like they're being shut down. But I think that's to get to teach young people about having a critically informed opinion that that is it does have more merit Obviously, opinions are always going to be opinions, but not all opinions are of equal merit, that you will be given a tool. I am say at the start of this unit, I'm giving you the tools to be able to have fascinating discussion with people for the rest of your life, but also to understand, well, how do I find that information? How do I find out more? When do I go? I need to find out more that process of it's kind of a process of learning as well that's how you learn about things is to and especially things that are debatable and controversial it's yeah i think that that is that process and i think it's so invaluable and you see and i you know that's that's something you can't see in numbers and results. I see the outcome of that. Every time I teach about abortion or euthanasia or the death penalty or, you know, genetic injury, things where they don't know, they have, might have a view start with. You, we explore the issue, explore a range of perspectives, we get an outcome, and actually you see they are able to construct a critical opinion, and like, that is my job done then, and that they can apply that to so many avenues in life and issues going on in the world. So, yeah, I think there's a, a real value in that critical thinking. In fact, one of the biggest values, yeah.
2: I want to quickly ask you about something you mentioned a little earlier, which was yeah. the idea of standardised testing and especially the idea that you can be put in sets that sort of limit your um, potential to achieve from the very outset. What is your opinion on this? And how, if at all, do you think that we might be able to do things slightly differently, but still sort of, track that children are progressing.
0: We need more critical thinkers, we more need more you know, synth- synthesised based thinking, we need more people who are proactive, engagement, taking music, all these things, yet we have moved to a knowledge-based exam system that requires constant, repetitive um, testing, um, and that is just not a system that reflects the needs of our society not that that's any value in education and I think that's something we're not going to be moving away from anytime soon we have even though we've had the last two years where exams have been taking place and teachers have been able to mark their students assessments you no know, we're going to go back to it next year um, and I think that's something you know there's teachers do not on the whole love standardized testing you know te- test 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 yes it has its value but ultimately, like what that's not how deep learning is measured. It's the only one of the only places in society where you will learn, like be measured on what you learn within that kind of framework. Um, in terms of setting, it's a very interesting ongoing discussion. And they ideologically changed their view a few years ago and saw that actually overall students do better when they're not feeling like they're in a set, therefore that defines them in some way. Um, and very, we used to have sets in religious studies before I started, but we've always had mixed sets, mixed groups since I've been there. And I've never had any issues at all. It's wonderful. It's much better debates because you have people learning from each other so much more. However, when you ask students, like generally lower ability students prefer mixed ability sets, higher ability students much prefer sets. And that's it's an interesting thing. I don't think there's an easy answer to that, that people who are higher ability do feel sometimes that they're not given a, like they they get missed out or they feel like they're brought down. I don't know whether that's the case and I don't want to like speak for all students, but I think it's interesting that there are mixed opinions amongst students as well about the value of sets. My personal view is you just shouldn't have sets wherever possible because it it creates just flunk groups. It creates like whole you know the people at the bottom. Well, what where's there to work towards? It creates such a bad dynamic.
2: We've essentially this last year and a half, aside from all of the awful things that went on, was an opportunity to experiment with doing things differently because we were forced to. So the fact that we've chosen and when I say we. I I don't necessarily mean you and I, or even your colleagues, but as a society have chosen to go back to how things were in terms of testing is an interesting thing because essentially, yes, we were forced to move away from it. So we could have continued to move away from it. Um, We've spoken about the general barriers that all students might face, um, but in your experience, are there some students that face more barriers to access than others, um, both at the compulsory level your teaching but also obviously in access to further education
0: yeah i mean the barriers are huge in Sonyo's, and i think these are things that are just not engaged enough like, you know and also the last year and a half have highlighted those barriers even more so you know socioeconomic background huge one you know that that has an impact on you know parental and carer attitudes to uh, you know education you know parents didn't have a great experience at school that less that might be that may might be less likely to speak positively about education you know distance from school even these are sometimes students that come getting two buses to just get into school so that already the motivation wanes there um but then you know yeah i also many other barriers including uh, like people's ethnicity, their sexuality, their gender, you know, all the things that are now being highlighted in schools that all, all these structure, levels of structural inequality that still exist when it comes to um people because of their their background, huge issues. Um, and I think those are barriers. Those are huge barriers that we can't get around easily. And we've the whole focus in like the last five or so years in education, close the gap, close the gap. The rift is huge now. In the last year and a half, it's like they say, ten years of work has gone, been rewound because it's you know the issues and impact of COVID has been huge. Um, those are things that we can't, you know, a, a teacher can only do so much of in a classroom, and I is you know it's really sad that there's only so much you can do. Some schools do a lot better at it, you know, having regular communication with home. Those kind of things do help, but there's no easy answer to that. And I think, you know, I see it day in, day out that inequality playing out in learning is huge because, they you know, people who have a, you know, really, really stable home life and people who like are more likely to promote learning, to get their children to like uh, focus on learning, you know, get private tuition, all these things that end up having a really, really important impact on outcomes. So, yeah. It's um, it is a big issue.
2: Yeah, um, and something you mentioned earlier, academies were actually a solution that was proposed by the government as trying to address some of these inequalities. Essentially, and this is me speaking from my opinion now, um, academies represent the commercialization of education because academies are businesses versus state-run, state-owned, local authority-run, local authority-owned schools. And then coupled with this and the commercialization of education, obviously we have things like tuition fees going up exponentially. What is the effect of this as a teacher? I don't know if the school you work in is an academy, but obviously you know about the environment of academies.
0: Um, so it's interesting. Until about... Four, three years ago, the government's plan was to academise all schools. Then, there, because there was such backlash, we even in Brighton and Hove, because we're a very undertapped area for academies, we, there were even a gre- it was an agreement that if that was the case, then all schools and secondary schools in Brighton would group together and make a kind of Brighton and Hove trust, which was like, you know, that was the best of a worst situation. Um, they then backtracked on that and said, you know, if schools are good or outstanding, they will not be forced to academise. Their aim is still to academise all school. They are right, the most corporate, business-focused, uh, privatised government we've ever had. They still want schools to be privatised, um, that had a huge impact and made on our school. And everyone was really worried about that. And um, they've also seen, uh, like uh, simultaneously made it far more difficult for uh, schools to teachers to strike, so we don't have the ability to be able to uh, use union support there. Um, but that would have had an impact on lots of things within our school you know what subjects are taught like how they're taught the you know teachers paying conditions the support you get as teachers all these things all these things that they pretend uh government pretends are po- like positive things they're not they're not you, school, if invariably academies have far more con- they have way more control over what they do in school but that doesn't have a positive impact on many things it does sometimes have an impact on learning but the way it's done I, I, I really ideologically like condemn academies I really do and I'm not saying they're not academies that do really good things but in the, the whole concept of businesses and financial interests being the the first and foremost reason that schools do things is just wrong it's wrong and it's never going to be in the best interest of students it's in the best interest of shareholders and that's just not right
2: you just spoke about it being difficult uh, becoming increasingly difficult for teachers to strike and I mean join the club we're seeing the erosion of the ability and the right to protest Um, happening in front of our eyes across the board Um, and you also spoke earlier about the lack of consultation and things seemingly being very top down in decision making when things like changes to the curriculum etc so what are the opportunities then for teachers to contribute to these decisions?
0: Um, Well unfortunately fairly limited I mean I am part of the NEU most teachers at our school are part of the NEU or some union and yeah you know we've got a great um the head of the NEU for Brighton and Hove was actually an English teacher at our school for 30 years and he's an absolute legend so I feel you know he's really um we feel really personally connected to him and he's always there for everyone including colleagues of mine I used to work at a special needs college before I became a teacher and they he even worked with them because he's just amazing and we you know that's the real power of unions to kind of support community um but yeah, it's 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 difficult in an environment where those kind of rights are being eroded. Um, I don't feel that we have were consulted on the changes to the GCSE in terms of the changes in of exams in the last year or so there was kind of consultation uh, process that went out to teachers in terms of what they thought would be better whether that's just a, or we'll ask you and then but actually we've made the decision already is another thing it did feel slightly like we got to say but in general no I don't think we have a, a general uh, kind of participatory democratic process when it comes to Uh, the way that changes are made in education, not at all. No, it's a top down thing by people who have no experience in that area. It's literally just some game of, well, you can be this person now, you can be this secretary. Um, And that doesn't make people feel consulted or valued. But I think within, you know, within my subject, for instance, within religious studies, there are great online forums where like teachers across the country liaise and talk and share and i think there is a real community amongst subjects and i think that has a huge power um that whether that then gets passed up to actual kind of policy initiatives and changes is another thing but i think you know there is yeah there are real communities within teaching that we shouldn't ignore because they are that you know that's where great practice gets shared all the time and that has an impact in the classroom every day so
2: So Mark, last question, based on that notion of community organising and the micro changes that we can all make, um, we've spoken about so much and if people are listening and they're feeling energised but a little bit overwhelmed by what they can do, um, what would you say is a starting point or an action that they can take that might have the biggest impact on our education system? Um, And I think there's a few different people that you can maybe talk to here, there's teachers, other teachers um how they can be creative within the limits um of what they're presented with there's parents um who obviously are um the guardians of the people attending the schools um their students who are the people that are consuming the product i guess and then um they're just everyday people who are maybe aren't parents yet aren't in school either but would like to support sort of the movement and this is a system that's you know, centuries old, so what,
0: what 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 might we do? I I wonder the way, um, you know, how teaching is viewed within our society. I think this last year maybe parents are more aware of the hard work that teachers do and I think that's great and I've heard so many wonderful messages from parents, you know, I wish there was more solidarity with the teaching profession That re- to realise we're not tools, we're not just a service that's provided, it, we're actually a vital part of a a progressive and like functioning society. And I, you know, it's again me not trying to blame on Trumpet. It's like I, I just want there to be that, you know, if people could get from this podcast that there is, you know, there's a multitude of things that teachers do and the passion and energy that teachers have is, you know, I w- want people to see that. In terms of, yeah, I guess other teachers, I guess if any teachers are listening to this and are uh, withering after the longest year of our teaching lives, then hopefully maybe it could. Uh, it's and some more passion and I hope teachers are passionate about this subject whatever they do and long may that continue um yeah and I guess students as well you know if they're listening students hopefully they can feel more empowered by the education and remember that you know if they're not getting that everywhere in their learning then you know when you get to further education hopefully you'll be able to see that if you're choosing your options maybe you'll see that more when you're choosing that. and if not then be empowered within your school. You know, we're set, I'm setting up an LGBTQ plus I club, club um, in September, there's been a lot of issues uh, around the country when it comes to uh, like issues of homophobia, but also, you know, like uh, racism and uh, um, sexism, et cetera. I think there's a lot of very empowered students at our school and there, yeah, there's a lot of real positive things that are going to come from that. Um, and yeah, be empowered. You, you can create change in your school you know keep it local to start with you know don't think that you need to change the world you can change things within your school within th- things that are within your grasp. so um I think yeah there's some real positives that can come
2: yeah no I think that's a really important point actually and actually we have seen that I think very much over the last year as well is students are actually feeling quite empowered and are organizing and I find this generation so Gen Z which is the generation below me so um they give me a lot of hope because I think They're both hyper-aware of what's going on and they have the tools and the language to tackle it, um, which are things that I didn't so much have. Things like Twitter were just about coming to be popular when I was in school and I certainly didn't know things like microaggressions and (laughs) um, white supremacy, terms like that. I had no idea what they meant, Um, but I knew they existed because I felt them, but I didn't have the language to attach them. So, on the one hand I find it quite, sad isn't the right word, but I do feel that young people should be protected from some things. I feel like they have quite a lot on their shoulders from a young age, but it's the reality of our society. So at least they have the language and the tools to attack it, which is really cool. Um, Okay, I lied. My very, very, very last question is, when will your services, when will your work no longer be needed, Mark? If ever. I
0: I don't think teaching will ever go. I think um, it was interesting when looking at, um, the rise of automation, which is an inevitable reality in our future, um, there was, I can't even remember who made the list, but there was a kind of like research done looking at kind of what are the most, I'm going to use a word, a word that doesn't exist, and least automatable jobs. Um, and teaching is something that is quite low down that list of jobs that are going to be automated. However, in this year of zooms and teams lessons i've been so depressed by how teaching can be reduced to screens and staring at screens and i don't wish that could ever be the case e-learning is the piss-poor way, pardon my language of learning. Um, it's something that many workplaces do use, so I don't ever, ever want that to be the case. There is so much value in face-to-face learning. Yes, our education system needs to be radically changed, but the value of being in an environment where people can learn from each other and learn from the teacher, and yeah, change the didactic system where teachers stand for hours on end in front of students and having to do it that way. You want to... Uh, there need to be changes, but I don't... I really, really would decry anyone saying that teaching and should and school should change to the point where students don't go into school every day I really just think there's such a like fundamental value to that
2: so um the question that I ask you fortnightly Mona <laughs> what did you think this week what stood up
1: to you um yeah big topic again um incredibly knowledgeable guests i think one thing that really just stood out to me and I, and i like i said to loic as well was actually just how heartening it is to hear from teachers from people who either are teaching or have been teaching um about the amount of really like passion and effort they're putting into their subject and their you know their classes and their teaching despite how demanding the job is and how many hours we all know that teachers work or that I hope people know that teachers work. And to sort of, I think it can be quite easy, you know, a lot of the time with any subject to get bogged down into the things we want to critique a bit and the things that we want to change. And obviously that's also partly the point of this podcast, like what could we change? And, Um, You know, it it is very common to kind of get frustrated with what's missing from schools and, you know, what it isn't giving our children and what annoyed us about something that happened, you know, in in, in a school or in a service that we receive in general in society. But to really just be reminded that, like, it is a damn difficult job and, and there are teachers, you know, putting as much energy and imagination and thought and care into their subjects as both Mark and Loic talked about. And also really being reminded of how much of a broader function schools serve than just education, whatever just education even means, right? But, you know, you're not just going in there to learn some scientific facts and how to do algebra or whatever, but... As Loic said, the amount of basis that education was set up to provide, including, like we said, childcare, um, but also that almost like flourishing of humanity that he references. And then also Mark pretty much saying we end up being social workers and therapists and, you know, foster parents and everything. And I, and I, I really I think we need to really remember that as well for a second, yeah. even though there is a lot to be frustrated about at the moment. And I think lockdown really showed us how big of a void was left when schools closed.
2: Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. Um, Lockdown definitely showed that. And it's always important to remember that essentially, these are human beings that are trying to navigate the same systems that we are, but with such a responsibility on their hands, essentially, um, raising the next generation. And it's, again, goes back to some of the things we talk about a lot, which is how to navigate sort of the micro changes whilst also pushing for the macro changes and I think both of our guests embodied that perfectly this week in talking about the things that they do on a micro level every day within their remit to try and push for change and to try and maximize what they can do within the constraints that are set for them um and using imagination and teaching imaginatively within the frameworks um to the point where I actually was feeling quite excited and like oh I wish I was 13 now and could go to one of Mark's lessons about how does technology interact with (laughs) RE and all of these things that just sound really fascinating and hopefully um inadvertently will be giving students all of these skills that we want them to have just through being inspired by the things that they're being taught and seeing role models in their teachers as well um But they're both also very conscious of the macro changes, aren't they? And they're still pushing for those. And um, we were given some great examples of how you might actually totally revolutionise the system.
1: Yeah. And I think just, you know, this, I I guess kind of that Loic also touched upon, which is that, um, and it becomes a bit of a chicken egg thing, but, you know, essentially that if the people that become teachers have then also had a good enough education, you know, like, like actually like, you know then you can trust them you know you know to kind of be imaginative and maybe give a baseline curriculum but then they do get to evolve and adapt that because you've trusted that you've taught them well that teacher training is developed well and we didn't even get into what's in teacher training right but like a strong enough education system in the first place good enough teacher training and then a good enough kind of like standard for how you select teachers in the first place and then you've done a lot of your due diligence and then at some point you obviously probably can trust these people to kind of play with it and I thought it was interesting what Loic said about like actually you know a good enough teacher or someone who's given it enough thought will kind of question their own you know how do I teach this subject and how do I still maybe put some opinion in there I can still get subjectivity in there without that being problematic if I'm doing it the right way you know and and I feel like you know going back to this idea that schooling is where we become um prepared for society at large for taking part in democracy for being citizens etc cetera, etc cetera. i guess in an ideal world if that is being done well well then you trust the product that's coming out of it and then that product reteaches the next <laughs> kind of generation but i guess some of one of the problems perhaps with one of the issues at the moment is that just the people probably don't really trust where they feel that that baseline is coming from right as in like the idea of a national curriculum in principle should be a good thing you know there are certain things we all deserve by being for being human um there are certain things that probably are good for all of us no matter what and maybe the idea that we should try and uphold that as society is obviously should be a good thing but I guess we have so much mistrust in whether the people giving us that have our best interests at heart and that's what you were saying about pushing at the macro as well as recognizing um the micro you know, this episode has really had a lot of contributors um, and we had some really great suggestions sent to us by um, Pippa Knott, a policy manager at a youth and education funder. And she mentioned projects that really are trying to kind of change almost the whole way that education is is, is done Um Radical Restart is a youth led activist collective um Rekindle School in Manchester is kind of like a youth led school that really is trying to get back to this idea of a very like nurturing holistic like soulful learning for students you've got uh, the Phoenix Education which like is focusing on educational transformation there's something called the Big Education Conversation which is meant to be a five year democratic and sort of youth led inquiry so these are some of the examples of like if you really want to try and overhaul a system um or I guess within within the system (laughs) there are other things that there are still things we can do before we overhaul it I guess is what we always come back to
2: yeah there there are so many things we can do and there are lots of different people and institutions and schools trying things to do things differently from sort of like Steiner schools to alternative schools etc etc so we'll link all of that below because don't want to just keep listing and listing things at you and we'll also link some resources and ideas that will help you maybe think differently within your remit like videos on critical thinking and um, we'll link you to all of the different websites like the national curriculum website and things like that they'll all be in the notes below
1: Um, and as always you can check out some of our other episodes a lot of a lot was said today about unionizing of teachers so there is our workers rights episode that talks about unions you can go back over our systems episode you know how you might change systems so there is resources um within um within our sort of televised (laughs) ecosystem in in the yes exactly exactly (laughs) we hope so anyway but yeah. Um and as, as um as always, if you would like um like Renata to inspire a future episode, please do get in touch. Um this is really what we would love to to do is to hear from you. Um what do you feel is missing, what haven't we discussed? Um and um if you're lucky, you know, it will we we will dedicate a sort of whole episode to the to the subject.
2: Yeah, and as always, guys, you can follow, subscribe, rate and review us. That really helps us to get out there and for other people to find the podcast. So if you think it's worthwhile other people learning, discussing and sharing the subjects that we cover, then please do do these things because it helps us raise our profile Um, and we'd also love your feedback and thoughts over on our social media channels so at untelevised underscore tv on both twitter and instagram you can find us there and we do lots of content around the subjects that we talk about there that you don't hear on the podcast we've also got a website untelevised.co.uk with more of the same great stuff on there and resources articles videos and of course all of the podcast episodes on there as well so there's lots of places you can keep in touch with us if you miss us in the fortnight that we're not around <laughs> um, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks
1: yeah see you then guys bye bye call me a dreamer idealistic believer
0: with my head in a cloud i don't want to calm down but my feet are planted on on so
1: my ground yeah, my ground